you would please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're reviewing uh, lessons that have been uh, learned in uh, recent years. So last week we did uh, a review of a series we called The Scattering. This week we're reviewing a series from last year um, dealing with the missionary journeys of Paul. And we'll be here in Acts chapter 13 to begin with, which is page 766 if you're using one of our Bibles. In Genesis chapter 1, the Lord makes the man and the woman, and this is the way the text goes. In the image of God, uh, God made man in his image. In the image of God, he made him male and female, he made them. And then the text says, the Bible says, he blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. That's the, the teachings, that's what the Lord told the man and the woman. He said to the two people, he said, out of his mouth was, be fruitful, increase in number, multiply greatly. Now we know there's a lot of things God wants for us to do in our lives. Implicit in probably that command, God might say, is, you know, worship me and love me and, and love one another and all that sort of thing. But what the Lord, the Lord made the man and the woman, he blessed them, and he said, make more people. That's what the Lord said. He said, go make more people. doesn't necessarily seem very purposeful that the job of people is to make more people. But the Lord was intent on saying that. I mean, those, those are the first kind of words directed to, to mankind was be fruitful and increase in number. Go make more of yourselves. And obviously we, uh, we know, as we stand back from this idea, and if I, if I were to say to you, that the goal, the object of people is to make more people. We can say, I hear that, but you'd also say there's other things. You know, what about people who can't have children? What about people who are single? I get that. I on the whole, on the whole, God is saying people make more people. It's a blessing to make more people. We want to be fruitful and increase the number and fill the earth and subdue it. The subduing of the earth is an accompanying teaching. So be fruitful and increase the number, and therefore you can lord over and, and, and rule the earth. But people make more people. The Lord is a Lord of life. The Lord has given us the responsibility of producing the most valued commodity the earth has ever known, which is people. A person is the most precious of all things, and we make them. You know this is a godly teaching because the enemy tries to counter this teaching in every way, right? The enemy is anti-life. The enemy is the one who spurs us to shed blood. The Satan is the one who has created in our culture a culture of abortion. But the Lord says, people make people. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to make people. That's why it's so fun. It is. Right? And the Lord made it like so that we would want to do it. And I, this is not good. I would say this. I, let me at least say this, though, and I'm going down a rabbit trail, but 
If you have a life in which your sexuality is being enjoyed and yet always at, at the cost of preventing new life, that's problematic. If you want to enjoy a wonderful sex life, but you don't want to actually reproduce, which is the fundamental purpose for what you're doing, there's a problem. Well, I, I am not Roman Catholic, and I will not say that you cannot, you know, I won't say in a dogmatic sense what you can and can't do with contraception, but I will say this about my Catholic brothers and sisters. They stand up for life, and they recognize that the best gift that can happen in marriage is to make new life. You know, the, akin to the culture of abortion is a culture of, I just want to grow up and enjoy my toys and enjoy my spouse and enjoy my adventure and not have children. Satan is every bit as effective in the highly affluent suburban people who stop having children. God says to people, go make people. Make people. And I think this morning as we look at, at the purpose of the church, we will see this, this mood. This, the church is God's people we'll see this sentiment present itself again. And so let's look at uh, Acts 13. If last week was a teaching um, about Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. If last week we were simply demonstrating that God desires that we would be his witness throughout the earth, that there are people just like you and me who have not yet heard. There are nations that he loves every bit as much that haven't heard that we sometimes take for granted the precious gift of this and of this. And there are people who have it, no access to it. If that it was last week, the last week the Lord's saying, I desire that all of mankind would know what I've done for them. I love nations. I love people then this week is, and here's how I do it. So last week is, I want it done. This week is, here, how I do it. And so we'll read three verses from uh, the beginning of Acts 13, and we'll head off from there. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The journey of Paul and Barnabas begins at church. And that's what just happened there. It began at church. This is a church mission trip. That's what this is. Certainly there are other ways that the Lord can reach people, and he does. He has used these other ways. Certainly a Bible could fall out of an airplane and land into a jungle. Certainly all sorts of weird things can happen. But the conventional way that God reaches out to reach people who have not heard is with the church. He sends people from the church on mission to bring the gospel to a new place. That's just how he does it. That's just how it happens. There is no other mainstay primary mechanism that exists on this earth to share the love of Christ except through the church. 
It occasionally happens in other ways, but it generally happens this way. Evangelism, church evangelism. This is organized, empowered, community evangelism. This is the way of the church. And when it comes to this word evangelism, this is, I think, I think I'm okay to say this. I think people oftentimes begin to feel uncomfortable inside. Evangelism. Evangelism's fallen on hard times. It's taken a few in the chin. And I think we feel uncomfortable because in one way, most of us probably feel like I don't share the gospel like I maybe oughta. I don't really talk about Christ in a way that reflects how I feel about Christ. And then when we deal with this discomfort and maybe this guilt, whether it's right or not right, we, we buttress up this feeling uh, with this defense, which you say, well, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not gifted in evangelism. We have this uh, issue of giftedness, that I'm not gifted in evangelism. Some people are gifted, but I'm not gifted. And that's a biblical notion, by the way. It says in Ephesians, some are called first be apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and preachers. So the Bible recognizes that not all of us are evangelists. In fact, I would say likely that few of us are gifted, called evangelists. But that's different from the idea that the church is called to evangelism. So you may not be an evangelist, but the church at large is called and compelled to evangelism. We're supposed to share the gospel. We're supposed to empower it. When the Holy Spirit comes on somebody and and the Spirit says, set apart this person for the work of evangelism, we're supposed to empower it and celebrate it and support it and move it. In fact, the church should have, the church should have a heart that desires that evangelists would be called out of our body because it's something that we do. It should be the prayer. It should be the parental prayer and the grand parental prayer in this fellowship that God would raise up from among us great evangelists. We need them more than we need doctors. We should want young people, children, to be drawn to ask the Lord, are you calling me? Because the church is involved in evangelism. And when it happens, we send them out. That's what happened here is they sent out Paul and Barnabas. They they prayed that the word of the Lord came within the life of the church, not to Paul and Barnabas, but to the church leadership at Antioch. When they recognized it, they prayed, then the church laid hands, and then the church sent. In fact, when the mission trip was done, they went back to the church and reported to the church everything that had happened because they recognized that while they were called evangelists, the church was responsible for the evangelism. This is what I would say to the, the large church here. It should be our expectation and our hope that God would call from us people dedicated to evangelism. That's a sign of a living church. And I would say to those 30-odd of you going down to Market Street in three weeks, that you don't all have to be like Paul. Paul's pretty unique. Collectively, I would hope that you would manifest the heart and qualities, the evangelistic heart and qualities that, that are kind of expressed in Scripture. But individually, I wouldn't, I, w- I wouldn't worry, right? There's different ways that it's done, different ways that it's shown, and we don't have to all be Paul, but we should not miss it either. You should not miss this opportunity 
for those of you who are going to say, this is special. And so they go. They head out, and this is what happens. You can kind of follow. I'm not going to read. Um, we've, we've worked through this text last year, but I will remind us what happened. They go to Cyprus, and when they're in Cyprus, they proclaim the word of God. The Holy Spirit's power shows up and makes, makes himself known. There's resistance by the enemy, and then there is conversion. That's the pattern that is established in Cyprus. Paul and Barnabas preach the word. There's resistance from a, a gentleman. Actually, he's like almost filled with an, uh, a demonic spirit. He begins to speak against it. And the Holy Spirit comes down and blinds the man. And when that happens, the proconsul sees it and he converts and becomes a believer. That's what happens in Cyprus. Proclamation and the spirit power, resistance, conversion. And the resistance is really not significant. It's just kind of a nuisance. When they go to Pisidian Antioch in the 13th verse, which is an Antioch in Turkey, they do the same thing. They proclaim the gospel in like fashion. The Holy Spirit shows up in like fashion. Resistance to the Holy Spirit shows up as one would expect in various ways and shapes. And then there is conversion. And this time when the resistance shows up, it's a little more significant than it was the first time. In fact, in this time, it causes them to leave the city. You see in the 51st verse, it says, So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went on to Iconium. Still, they were celebrating. It says in 52, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit because they had proclaimed the word and the spirit had shown up and despite the resistance, people had come to know Christ. And so they go from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium and the pattern displays itself again. They proclaim the word of God. The spirit of God shows up. There's resistance to the spirit of God, this time even more severe than the last. This time they find out that there's a threat to stone them to death, so they leave. But despite that, there is conversion. There's many people who come to know the Lord in Iconium. And they go to Lystra, and the pattern follows itself again. They proclaim the word of God. The the Holy Spirit shows up to validate their words. There's strong resistance. In fact, in this time, Paul the apostle is stoned within an inch of his life. They think he's dead. And many people come to know the Lord. And he gets up and he goes to the town of Derbe. And in Derbe... Everything goes great. We don't really know much. It just sounds like a great town. There's various efforts that are kind of listed through chapters 13 and 14. Various efforts, various levels of of reception, various ways of resistance, various ways that the Holy Spirit showed himself. In Cyprus, they rejoice that a notable person comes to Christ. Later on, many people come to Christ. And in Cyprus, there's a little bit of resistance. Three of the five cities they go to, they're forced to leave. They're run out. There's various forms and fashions that evangelism and resistance is, is taking place in this story. To which I would say to the church, to those going and those sending. We don't know what's going to happen down there. You don't know what's going to happen. The Lord does not give us signal from the word that just because he has called us that it will be easy or that a million people are going to come to know Jesus. You could have great resistance in one conversion. 
I say that because we simply don't know what's going to happen when we send these families and we plant this church and they begin to live life on, uh, live their life their, of faith down there. We simply don't know what's going to happen. And we should be cautious to assign certain metrics of success as to what is a valid church. What's a valid effort? We may be tempted to say, well, when are they going to be self-supportive? That's a metric of success. Or we may be tempted to say, well, when are they going to double in size? We want them to be 100 by this. And I would say we, I mean you who are going may be just as tempted or even more tempted to establish criteria for success in your effort. You're going to want to be able to say, this validates that, that God is at work here. This validates that this was the good idea. That is not the question. The question is not, when will things validate themselves? The question is, were you sent? The question isn't how many people are going to come to know the Lord. The question is, are we sent? We should stop and reflect and go, have we been sent? God wants us to be obedient in the going. The harvest is the Lord's. We're simply obedient in the going. In fact, the the encouragement that comes from Paul and Barnabas at, at towards the end of the story, says as much. Look at 14, verse 22. So they go Cyprus, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and they hang out at Derby for a while. And then they reverse course and they revisit the churches that they had been to earlier. And as they visit these churches, this is how they encourage. Now tell me if this sounds like a wonderful, heartwarming encouragement to you. It says in verse 22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, they say, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Right. And all the people said, amen. And all the, what Paul's essentially saying, because imagine, he's going back to Lystra, which last time they saw him, he was dead on the road. The town thought he was dead. Now, if you're a young convert, you might be thinking, has the faith failed? If you're a young believer, you might be wondering when you see all of this resistance and at times when it feels like Satan is stronger than Christ in these various settings, Paul is there to say, listen, the faith has already won. And we will have to go through trials and hardships across this life in order to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. Be strong. We have every reason to expect that when we plant a church at 239 North Market Street that the enemy will resist. If we're preaching a true gospel, we should expect the enemy to truly resist. That should be our expectation. which means it's important to us to remind ourselves that we were sent because the fruit in the harvest is the Lord's. Let's look a little bit at this, this moment of kind of course reversal here. I want to read verse 21 through 23 of chapter 14. I just want us to notice something about the trip. So, And I'll say before I read it, the trip scholars think, they debate, is somewhere between maybe one year and two years. That seems to be the ballpark estimate, somewhere between one and two years. 
the whole trip from Antioch all the way out and all the way back to Antioch. Okay? So sometime in this, we might say in the middle point, Verse 21, they preached the good news in that city, speaking of Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And then they returned home. When Paul and Barnabas go back to these cities, what do they revisit? That's what I want us to look at. I mean, I think they, this was, if, if let's say this was a year and a half, two year exploit journey, and they went to five cities, right? Cyprus, Pisidia, Antioch, Iconium, Lister, Derby. If they went to five cities, you're there, and then back again, you know, if you divide the year up, I'm just doing the math here, you're saying like they would spend maybe a couple of months in each city and then a couple of months on the way back. Which if, if I'm just averaging our evangelistic effort, right, student body evangelistic effort, how many months does it take you to really start witnessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a new person? What, what do you say, two, maybe three years? I mean, come on. They have been busy. and Because did you see what they revisited? What did they revisit? It says they revisited churches. Paul and Barnabas set out, and they spent a few months here and a few months there, and when they come back six, nine months later, they come back to churches. And some of you are saying, well, the Greek word there is assembly. It may have been just three people. I hear that. It says they appointed elders over these three people. Okay, that's pastor. They went back to this crowd of people and they said, huh, you guys need a pastor. I'm not saying it's some big fancy smancy room like this, right? This nice gymnasium. I'm not sure they have this kind of digs. But, but may, maybe it's 30 adults. Is 30 adults a church? I hope so. They're coming back to churches. I'm saying this because our form of evangelism, it's so overly relational sometimes that after three months you finally let on, you gave a hint. You go home and you tell your wife, today I hinted to my co-worker that I have been to church. <laughs> right? I kind of said this thing like, God bless you in the parking lot as I was leaving. I kind of heisman him with a God bless you. <laughs> right? And your whole thought is, and your thought of evangelism is just, is, it's non-relational or it's either overly relational or it's non-relational. It's, it's either kind of tracks Tell them the gospel, leave, or it's, I'm going to spend seven years making this person my best friend so that maybe he can come. I'm telling you that Paul and Barnabas planted churches in Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and Cyprus in months. Churches that required pastors. I'm not saying we can do that. I mean, to be fair, he started with a synagogue, so he wasn't starting at zero. Started with people of faith, some form of faith drawn to this truth. I'm just saying that when Paul labored, he labored to establish a church. He didn't kind of 
preach into the wind. He didn't kind of cast the gospel onto a crowd without concerning. In order to plant a church, you can't just say the gospel. You have to say the gospel and then follow it down into the person. You have to slam within the person and make sure it grows roots. Otherwise, it's, it's going to fall, and even if it converts, it's going to convert that individual into kind of an individual truth. How do you take it and then bind it into a community and gather them together and teach them how to live and how to share their life with them? He was not passing out tracts. He was preaching the gospel and discipling them. Some of us, we want to kind of share it and then give someone a Tim Keller book or, and hope Tim you know, finishes the game off or Beth Moore. Man, how about Jesus? And taking the time to spend time with believer or believers to help them gather together. Do you realize what Paul and Barnabas started? They started amidst resistance, severe resistance, and amidst persecution, but with the, the very same Holy Spirit that we have now. He has not changed. We have. God has not changed. With that spirit, Paul and Barnabas shared the word within a community, discipled it through the community. So when they left amidst severe persecution and came back a half a year, a year later, they find this community is not only still living together and following Christ, but is now in need of a pastor to grow and, and to do things. This is what I would say. What, what is the purpose of the church? I would say at some very simple level, the Lord would say the, the goal of a church is to make churches. That's what churches do. God would say God made church in his image. In his image, he created it. Right? Are we not the body of Christ? God has made the church in his image. And he blessed it and said to it, be fruitful, increase in numbers, subdue the earth. The goal of church is to make churches. That's what we're doing. Listen, remember this, church. This is what we're doing. We are going to make church. We're going somewhere, and we're going, to take, we're going to give these people the time of day and the love, and we're going to live our lives out around them so that they might, we, they, we might have a new church and a new place that's preaching God, and there will be spirit that will help that, and there will be resistance that will come against it, but there will be conversion, and there will be church. And I'll close with this idea because it's, it's just worth looking at. If you just skip to the 16th chapter, Paul and Silas go on their second missionary journey and they decide, let's revisit the old, our old fishing holes and see how they're doing. So they go to Pisidian Antioch, Lystra, Derby. Well, when they get to Lystra, there is a young man named Timothy who comes to the Lord and receives the faith. And there's all of this. You, you read, by the way, the church, it turns out that these churches have already planted churches. So it's in a planted church that Paul finds the next, one of the next great church planters and missionaries of his time. And I'm here to say, like, as 505 Schoolhouse, we do not have to be able to fully encompass with our skill set, with our energy, what God wants to do here. God may say, well, the next great person or next great movement is going to come from them. Just get there. That should be our prayer, is let us just be faithful to go there and let the Spirit take it from there. The goal of church is to make churches so that we might be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth because God loves people. He loves all people. 
Amen. Will you pray with me, Lord? Lord, I just we confess in your hearing that you love the nations and the tribes. Father, I think of continents that are not on the other side of the earth that haven't even heard, and we're just trying to go down the street. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would so bless this effort that we would be emboldened to do it again and again and again and again. Father, we pray for your grace, and I pray over the 30 going and the 300 sending. Lord, may we all grow in you through this effort, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.